Please be seated. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 8. In the famous fiction series, The Chronicles of Narnia, there's a scene in the first book when the children, who were the main characters in the story, hear about Aslan for the first time. Aslan is this mythical hero who would save Narnia from evil. And as the kids ask questions about Aslan, it leads to this famous exchange. Mr. Beaver, who, yes, is a talking beaver. It's a fiction story. Uh, he, he tells the kids, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, one of the young girls, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, was telling us something about God through the character of Aslan. He wants us to wrestle with this idea of God that can sometimes seem contradictory. On one hand, we know that God is love. He is good. He is faithful. He is gracious and merciful. But then we read verses like this one from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. It says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You ever sing that song? He's got the whole world in his hands. And then we mean that as an encouragement. But according to Hebrews 10, being in God's hands can be a fearful thing. The Bible speaks often of God's anger and wrath. It speaks of his judgment. And we frequently see him pouring out his judgment on people he made, as we just saw with Aaron's sons. And we're told over and over in Scripture to fear the Lord. So how can God be both kind and fearsome, good and angry? Well, C.S. Lewis again wrestles with this idea in one of the best Christian books ever written called Mere Christianity. And he says this, I quote, God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror, the thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally, and we have made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger according to the way you react to it. And we have reacted the wrong way. Now we know as followers of Jesus, we come to God through Jesus as our mediator. We have his forgiveness, his righteousness. We come to God safely covered by the blood of Christ. Hebrews says we can even come to God boldly with our prayers. Because of Jesus, we know God receives us as a loving father. But the relationship we have with God through Jesus should never belittle him or, or downplay his fear-invoking presence. Our God is still the God who sent the plagues on Egypt and who descended on Mount Sinai in smoke and thunder. Though we experience his love, he is still holy and to be feared in reverence and awe. So when we meet with Almighty God, just like the Israelites, we should make sure we understand what we're getting into, what it means to come into his presence, into the presence of a perfectly holy God. That's what I want to show us this morning as we take on our second week walking through the book of Leviticus. Remember, we're taking this often ignored book in big chunks. 
Uh, rather than digging into all the little details, we're trying to find the overarching message of this book. And we're answering the question, why Leviticus? Why is this book in our Bible? Why should we as Christians read it and know it today? <clears throat> we covered the first part of the book last week, and we saw that God prescribed a series of offerings to enable God and his people to maintain a relationship. We said the offerings serve to reveal our sin and need for God's grace. And ultimately, they point us to the sacrifice we have in Jesus. Today, we're going to look at the second big chunk of this book. And, and this section is all about the priesthood and what it meant to be clean and unclean. It includes some of the strangest laws of the Old Covenant. And while these concepts do not directly apply to us today under the New Covenant, the principles here do help us understand what it means to approach the presence of God. So let's walk through these chapters. And along the way, I want to give you three truths that we can take home. Here's the first. Number one, we must approach God thoughtfully. Thoughtfully. We find this truth in chapters 8 through 10. So let's break those down first. In chapter 8, we see the consecration of Aaron and his sons at pre as priests. Look at Leviticus 8, verses 1 through 4. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance in the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. This is a ceremony that is in, in obedience to what we saw back in Exodus 29, which I know you all remember that chapter exactly, right? Right? Yeah, of course. Uh, this ceremony involved preparing the priests, washing them down, putting them in their garments, pouring oil on them, then going in and offering sacrifices. And all of this served to prepare them to be holy and to act as mediators on behalf of the people. One of the cool things about this chapter, we see the repetition of this phrase, just as the Lord commanded Moses. That Moses was really careful to do everything exactly as God told him. And it's interesting, this phrase is used seven times at the end of seven sections. Then at the end of chapter 8, we see that the priests were to remain in the tabernacle for seven days. Number seven, it's used a lot in the Old Testament. It's God's favorite number. And it usually signifies completion or wholeness. And that, that's what the author wants us to see here. The priests were being completely devoted and set apart for God. Chapters 9 and 10, we see two examples of the priests performing their duties. One good example and one really bad one. The first good example is chapter 9. It's after the consecration. And Aaron and his sons perform all the sacrifices we covered last week. They make sacrifices for themselves, some for the people. They atone for the people's sins. They make sacrifices of thanksgiving and sacrifices of fellowship. They do everything exactly as they were taught, and we see the end result in Leviticus 9. Look at verses 22 to 24. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, this would have been a scary scene, but this was actually a good sign. 
It showed that God had accepted their offerings and the priests. This was the pattern that God intended. The people obey and things go well. But then comes chapter 10, and it's meant to be right after, to show us this, this juxtaposition. It's the bad example that I read at the very beginning of this message. Aaron's two oldest sons go rogue. They decide to make an offering on their own. They burn incense to God, and the text calls it unauthorized or strange or different fire. And here's the key phrase in verse 1. It says, which the Lord had not commanded them. Now, there are a lot of thoughts as to what exactly Nadab and Abihu did wrong. Some think they made these offerings while drunk. Since a few verses later, God tells Aaron not to go into the tabernacle after having consumed alcohol. Some think they tried to go in on their own into the Holy of Holies without permission. The truth is, we don't know for certain what they did wrong. We simply know that they tried to make an offering to God in their own way instead of God's way. They followed their own desires instead of obeying the Lord. And that action led to their instant death, even though they were God's appointed priest. For it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what does this section mean for us today? We don't have a tabernacle. We don't make sacrifices. But yet we worship the same God we read of right here in Leviticus And we, too, need to worship, approach God thoughtfully. That's exactly what we saw when we looked at Paul's instructions to the Corinthian church before we took the Lord's Supper. When we come to God in worship, and I'm not just talking about in church. I'm talking about any time, though this is worship. But any time, anywhere, we approach God in worship and we call on him. We should first examine ourselves, consider our motives and our heart. Paul says in Romans 12 that we should present our bodies as living sacrifices. So when we get ready to worship with our church family on Sunday mornings, you know, it's interesting. We, we often spend more time thinking about how we present ourselves on the outside than on the inside. Think about it. We get dressed up. We fix our hair. We make sure our kids look nice. And we never pause to consider how we are presenting our hearts to God. We don't stop long enough to think, why am I doing this? Why am I going to church today? Am I prepared to meet the Lord? And again, this is not just about being in a church building. Paul says our entire lives should be spiritual worship to God. So are we living out our worship thoughtfully? Are we considering how we present our hearts to him? Not only do we approach God thoughtfully by worshiping him rightly, but we also approach God thoughtfully by recognizing when we aren't right. Oftentimes we we come to that point where we realize that we're just going through the motions or maybe we, we look the part, but our heart is not where it should be. As fallen sinners, that happens to all of us from time to time. That happens to me. And that's when we need to remember this is why we come to God through Jesus. We have to confess that we need our Savior's help in worship. We we need our great high priest, and we approach him on that basis. Not on our own self-righteousness or because we're a good person or because we didn't sin as bad this past week. But no, it's, it's through the righteousness of Christ that we come. So that's our first point this morning. We must approach God thoughtfully. Let's move to the next part. Here's the second truth we can take away this morning. Number two, we represent God distinctly. 
Leviticus chapter 11, we come to the famous dietary laws. There's a long list here of the things that the Israelites could and couldn't eat. And the key terms used to distinguish the animals were the words clean and unclean. Now, those two terms did not refer to whether the animals were good or evil. All of God's creation, he said, was good or tasty or gross. Clean or unclean simply referred to something that would make a person fit or unfit to worship God. Eating an unclean animal would cause the person to become unclean for a period of time, and they would be unable to participate in the regular worship rhythms of the people. So which animals were clean, which were unclean? How did God decide which was which? Well, there's a really extensive system for classifying the animals based on whether they were land animals or fish or birds or reptiles or insects. I would encourage you, go read through this whole chapter later. The most famous example we know is meat. We know cows were clean, so the Israelites could eat beef, but pigs were unclean, so no pork, which was tragic. Another examples of clean foods were things like sheep, goats, fish with scales and fins, grasshoppers, yes, grasshoppers. Other unclean foods were things like shellfish and vultures and lizards and mice, and I'm completely with them on the mice. And on and on it goes. There's a lot here. People have tried to figure out, you know, why was this animal clean and this one wasn't? And how did God categorize all these? Some have said maybe it was for health reasons, to keep the Israelites safe. We know pigs are not the healthiest animals around. But the text doesn't give that reason. Others have said maybe it had to do with the way animals interacted with the environment. Vultures eat dead animals. And we all know that snakes are of the devil. But it doesn't really say that either. The truth is, we don't know exactly why animals were classified the way they were. There could have been many reasons God laid it out this way. But here's what we do learn at the end of chapter 11. We get pointed kind of in the direction of why God gave Israel the dietary laws. Look at Leviticus 11, verse 46 to 47. It says, This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters... And every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. The key word in those verses right there is the word distinction. As Israel made a distinction in the foods they ate, they became a distinction from the other nations around them. And this was to be true of their whole lives. They didn't dress like other people. They didn't eat like other people. They didn't worship like other people. They didn't live like other people. They were to be different. God was calling the Israelites to be set apart from the people around them. And this distinction was to go all the way down, even to the foods they ate. Their diet marked them as different because they were different. They were the people of God. Okay, now, what do these dietary laws mean for us today then? Well, let me just tell you, if we were still required to follow this diet, I would be in a lot of trouble. (laughs) I'm guessing you would too. And Kansas City would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, all right? I mean, big barbecue people here, right? We know as Christians living under the new covenant, we're not bound by the laws of the old covenant, and nowhere is this more clear than with the food laws. Jesus himself said, It's what comes out of your mouth, not into your mouth, that defiles a person and makes them unclean. 
And then we have the famous story with Peter in Acts chapter 10. You remember Peter was on the rooftop, he's hungry, and he saw this vision, this big sheet coming down with a whole spread of animals on it. And God says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, no way, God, I've never eaten anything unclean. Here's how God responds in Acts 10. And the voice of God came to him, Peter, again a second time, said, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And there we go. And now Blue Valley hosts barbecue classes and an annual cook-off barbecue. To the glory of God, praise the Lord. Amen. But there's actually more to this story in Acts chapter 10. This vision for Peter comes in the middle of a story about a guy named Cornelius, who was not a Jew, he was a Gentile. But he believed in God. An angel showed up to Cornelius and said, you need to find Peter. So he does. He sends some men. And right after Peter has this vision, the men show up. God tells Peter, go with these guys and do what they say. They tell Peter, hey, this guy named Cornelius, he wants to see you. And Peter, he's thinking, "Uh uh-oh, he's a Gentile. These guys are Gentiles. I'm not supposed to be around those kinds of people. They're unclean. But in his head, somewhere along the way, God helps him put this whole story together. And here's what he says in Acts 10, 28. He's meeting with the whole group of people in Cornelius' house. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of of another nation. So what he was doing was wrong for Jews. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. You see the connection that Peter makes? He hears from God in the vision, do not call any animal common or unclean. And now he says, do not call any person common or unclean. And he shares the gospel with them and they receive the Holy Spirit and they get baptized. And here's where this all comes together for us today. This means that as Christians, external things like food and ethnicity are no longer the defining marks of God's people. Our testimony is no longer in saying, sorry, I don't eat unclean foods. Or sorry, I don't hang around people from other groups. But Jesus told us what our testimony is today. He told us what makes us distinct and set apart. Here's what Jesus told his disciples, John 13. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is the kosher diet for the Christian today. The way we love one another is what should separate us from everyone else in the world. It's the essential way we represent God distinctly. And as we talked about before the Lord's Supper, this is something we should consider when we come to God in worship. The New Testament makes clear in 1 John, if you don't love people, you don't love God. You cannot worship God with hate in your heart for other people. I said it earlier, I'll say it again. Jesus said, if you're bringing a gift to the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, leave it. Leave it. Deal with that first. Because that's that important. So yes, worship is about how we approach God vertically, but how we treat people horizontally affects our worship as well because we're called to represent God distinctly.
Here's the third and last truth we can take away today. Number three, we must pursue God intentionally. Intentionally. We see this truth in chapters 12 through 15. And these are the toughest chapters in today's section. Seriously, go read this later. I mean, there are some things in here that will make you blush. These chapters deal with the situations that made an Israelite clean or unclean, and God was not leaving anything out. But what exactly did it mean? Why was it important for the people in this time? As I said, being clean or unclean was not a matter of sin necessarily. There were a lot of things that could cause you to become unclean that weren't even your fault. Rather, being clean had to do with being in a state of preparation for worship. There were basically three states a person could be in. Holy, clean, or unclean. The priests, they were holy. They had to remain holy because they worked with the holy things in the holy place of the tabernacle where God's holiness resided. For the everyday Israelite, their goal was to remain in a state of cleanness as often as they were able and remedy their uncleanness as quickly as they were able so that they could be prepared to worship at the tabernacle when needed because uncleanness could not come in contact with holiness. You had to be clean. So in these chapters, we see various scenarios that can make someone unclean. And here, most of these things consisted of something happening with your body. We read about childbirth, skin diseases, having mold in your clothes or home, sexual functions, and a woman's monthly cycle. This is not the part of the Bible I normally read to my kids before bed. But why would those situations make a person unclean? Well, I want to reiterate again, the issue here was not sin. Based off the list I just read, the average Israelite man or woman would have become unclean multiple times a month. So they were not being punished and God was not upset with them. Rather, this had to do with protecting the holy things of the tabernacle. Some of this was cultural. Some of this seems very strange to us. But something interesting I found is that many of the things that would make a person unclean involved a loss of wholeness. So without getting too graphic here with you, when a person's body lost something, whether that was routine or if it was a medical issue, they had to wait until they became whole again to be clean again. Look, as strange as this all seems, the goal was simply to be in a state of ritual cleanness so that you could approach the holiness of the tabernacle. And if you became unclean, which happened to everyone at some point, you followed the instructions to become clean again. Overall, the point of this whole system was for the people of Israel to think through how they ordered their lives so that they could be clean and ready when they needed to go to the tabernacle. God was calling them to be thoughtful and intentional in how they live their lives so as always to be ready for worship in God's presence. And when you think about it, our goal should be the same. We too should think intentionally about every aspect of our lives so that we live glorifying to him. Not just how we live on Sunday, but on every day of the week. Later in the Old Testament, the prophets would use this, this idea of clean and unclean to challenge God's people to consider the uncleanness in their hearts. So while we may not have to worry about being ritually clean today, we should think about the different areas of our lives and consider if we're honoring him in those places. 
in the way we work, in the way we deal with our finances, in the way we treat our bodies, in the way we treat others, in the way we manage our time? Are we pursuing God intentionally there? Are we thinking through how best to bring glory to God in every sphere of our being? So to sum it all up, here's what we see in these chapters. When we come into God's presence, we approach God thoughtfully, we represent God distinctly, and we pursue God intentionally. And you know, it's very easy for us to hear a message like this, for our eyes to glaze over and say, okay, check, 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 I'm good, I got it, I've heard this. But here's the reality. If it's up to us, we can never be spiritually clean or pure or holy on our own. The truth is, we aren't always thoughtful in how we approach God, but sometimes we worship with our mouths while our hearts are far from him. And we don't always represent God distinctly, but sometimes we look just like everyone else in the world. And we don't always pursue God intentionally, but sometimes we live as if he doesn't exist. On our own, we can't go into God's presence and we can't worship God rightly. That's why we need Jesus. Jesus alone can make us spiritually clean and fit to enter God's presence. And we see this truth illustrated in one of the most powerful stories in the Gospels. It's the encounter Jesus had with a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years straight. Besides how awful that would have been, I want you to consider this situation in light of what we've seen this morning. This woman was still living under that old Levitical system we just read about. And watch how this plays out. Luke chapter 8. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him, Jesus, and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, listen, he said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. See, because of her medical condition, this woman was in a constant state of ritual uncleanness under the old covenant. And by this time, there was such a stigma attached to it that she likely was a complete outcast in her society. Under the old way, she had no chance to enter the presence of God, but now the presence of God had come to her. And she didn't just enter his presence, she actually touched the fringe of his garment. She grabbed hold of the tabernacle on feet that was Jesus Christ, and she experienced God for herself. And she was changed forever friends what we need to enter the presence of God and have a relationship with God is to be made whole and clean not physically but spiritually we need to be forgiven of our sins we need a new heart and we need to be changed from the inside out and that comes only through a touch of the Savior
What we need is to step out in faith and say, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm unclean. I know I'm not worthy of God. But if I can just touch the hem of his robe, I know Jesus can change me. Jesus is the way to God. He's the only way. And today he's inviting you to come into his presence, to worship him, to experience his love and grace. I don't care who you are, where you've been, how far you've run. Today you can come home. That's what you were made for. You can grab hold and you can experience God for yourself. Let's pray.